This episode of The Bittersweet Life is brought to you by Stackery. Stackery is the global leader in international parcel forwarding from the U.S. With Stackery.com, you can shop at any U.S. retailer and ship anywhere at prices up to 80% less than directly from the store. Stackery also provides free storage, same-day consolidation of your packages, and a tax-free U.S. address. As a Bittersweet Life listener, save 10% off your first shipment by using the coupon MANJA. Welcome to New Orleans. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Wasn't it fun to hear that New Orleans opening again? It was. Oh man, you know, I don't. the Rome one is totally classic, but there is something about that New Orleans opening. I just... I just really, really like it. It was. It's so exotic. Anyway, the reason that we played it was not just for my own vanity of how well I can mix sound together, (laughs) but because we are in this episode revisiting New Orleans one last time. There was an interview that I did when we were down there that we just haven't run yet with an author named Beth Ann Fennelly. You might remember her, if that name sounds vaguely familiar, Tiffany, from an episode we did called Glamour way back in the day. I do remember. I do remember. I loved that little micro short story that we talked about. Yeah, it was a story she wrote about being a foreign exchange student in London and a woman she admired had invited her for dinner and that woman during the dinner hurls an orange through the transom door breaking the window and how glamorous she thought that was. So we did a whole episode on why things strike us as glamorous at certain points when really, as an adult, you look at that incident and you think how destructive and immature, you know? (laughs) But at the same time, it still feels kind of glamorous. And it just so happened that when I was living in New Orleans, she was passing through. And so I invited her to come to my apartment and talk about writing and specifically talk about the art of writing the very short memoir. And I figured it would be useful because so many of the people who listen to this show are writers or they're travel bloggers or they're posting on Instagram. And so what better than the micro memoir as a as a way of documenting your life? Yeah, I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, she also gives us some good exercises to try. So tune in. Let me just quickly tell you about her really quick before we jump right into it. Beth Ann Finley, she is the author of three poetry collections, one memoir, and she co-authored the book the tilted world with her husband. She teaches at the University of Mississippi and she's also the poet laureate of Mississippi. Mm, Impressive. So we're going to jump into this interview with her reading one of her micro memoirs just so you get a sense of what they are in case you didn't listen to the glamour episode. And if you didn't go back and listen to it because that was a really fun episode. I think it's episode 173 but I'm not totally sure so look for the episode called glamour and all of the readings that we talk about during this interview are from her newest book which is called heating and cooling 52 micro memoirs and i love this book it's so inspiring to me it just makes me want to write so without further ado here is bethann finley reading one of her micro memoirs this is a one-page piece and it's called one doesn't always wish to converse on airplanes but This tanned, 
fit couple, white-sweatered, like tennis pros, seemed eager to talk, so we talked. No, their final destination wasn't Denver. They'd continued to Hawaii after the layover. How awesome, I said, Hawaii. Is it a special occasion, an anniversary? They grinned at each other like, you tell her. No, you. Their thing, it turned out, was scuba diving with metal detectors. They dove at popular honeymoon spots on Oahu because they said the first time those rich Japanese brides hit the water, their new diamonds slid right off. The couple said they didn't always find a ring, but overall they'd found enough to fund their vacations. That's... wow, I said. They grinned at each other again and took a sip from their Bloody Marys. Then she gave his biceps a squeeze. Her diamond ring broadcast sequins of light on the tray table. I envisioned how, after netting a big rock, they'd perform exceedingly athletic hotel sex. Their avarice was so unabashed that it was difficult to keep despising them. But I, large of righteousness and small of diamond, persevered all the way to Denver. I love that. I read an article that you wrote, I don't know how many years ago, or even if it was just recent, but you wrote about jet lag and the good parts about jet lag, which most of us just complain about it. But do you remember that article? Oh, sure. I mean, that was just a strange little piece, but I was thinking how we can't escape jet lag. People think they have the remedies, but really, if you travel, you'll get jet lag. And so if we can't fight it, would there be a way of finding an opportunity in it to see life from a different zone? And I was thinking the way sometimes even when we're sick, while it's not something that we choose to have a fever or something, it does allow us access to the world through a different lens. And also because of jet lag, I've seen things that I wouldn't normally see in countries, you know, because I've been awake. And so, you know, walking down to the pier where the fishermen are bringing in their fish and, you know, you're the only person there that's not a fisherman and it's still dark out and the salty smell and the languages you're hearing and the very fact that you don't belong there maybe even bothers you less because you're too tired to care, you know? And I remember being in Morocco, desperate to get to a hotel that had a gym because I felt I couldn't run on the streets. It was not culturally appropriate to put on running shorts and go running. So I finally got to a gym a hotel that had a gym. I'd been looking forward to it for days. I woke up in the middle of the night and I couldn't go back to sleep. So I thought, I'm just going to go get my workout in. And I went to the quote unquote gym and it was one treadmill. And in the middle of the treadmill, there was a small boy asleep and he was wrapped in, in hotel towels. And I just had this vision of how he must be the child of a maid, uh, some type of housekeeper and she puts him there and he actually looked really beautiful. There was this light coming in through the window and the, the call to prayer was coming in and um, his eyelids fluttered and there was no way I was going to wake him up. You know, I, w- I just, it was such a strange and beautiful like, insight into that boy's life in another country. And I wouldn't have seen it if I was doing what I wanted to be doing, which was sleeping. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. I, I had the same experience when I moved to Rome and I was up all night in Rome uh, we always joke is the city that always sleeps because you know if you go out late enough nobody's out and yeah. if you uh go out in the afternoon a bunch of people are sleeping too but 
I remember standing in Piazza Navona alone, which nobody gets that, you know, with the fountain still running in the light, but not a single person in the square, which was pretty remarkable. So when you're writing these little memoirs, how is it that this couple, they rise up and they become something that you remember that becomes a part of this book? Is there any way to trace where the little memories that you're writing about are coming from? Or are you just sitting down and as something pops into your head, you're writing it down? Sometimes I think memories stick because we don't fully understand them, that there's something about it that needs to be understood. Almost our anxiety about not understanding something that happened is what keeps it in our memory. And so just always having remembered that couple, but there's no reason I should remember them. You know, you meet a hundred cool people every day, you know, like why remember them? But one of the things I ended up kind of tugging out as I went back to that memory is they were so fun to hate because they were so good and happy. (laughs) And so, you know, it's ultimately a piece that I think is not really flattering about me. They had no guilt or remorse. And why should those diamonds just be at the bottom of the sea? Someone should get them. Someone should get them and live a good life. Like literally there was nothing wrong with what they did, but um, I just didn't like them. (laughs) And did you, in writing the piece, did you figure out any reason why it was that they struck you as sort of the despisable type? Well, just seems like everything comes easy to some people and I know that's not the case but this was a couple that definitely seemed to be enjoying how much they enjoyed each other and didn't mind if other people noticed I thought one of the things that's so interesting is this book is coming is this the first book you had out after writing the novel with your husband yeah and so in a lot of ways I think it's actually a direct reaction to writing the novel because the tilted world is the name of the novel that my husband Tom Franklin and I wrote together And it took us four years to write. And it's set in 1927, and it's about the flood of the Mississippi River. So we did a tremendous amount of historical research. And um, it was pretty high stakes. It took us four years to write each, you know. And so if that failed, that would obviously not be great for our marriage, for example, or our sanity. But it didn't fail. It did great. You know, it was awesome. Um, So I think after that, I thought I would just write another novel. But instead, I was just writing these strange little thoughts in my notebook and waiting for them to add up to something. And they kept not adding up to something until finally I thought, what if they are somethings? They're just really small somethings. And so I I kind of freed myself up when I thought of the word micro memoir to approach them differently. But one reason why it was so fun is it was low stakes. You know, as opposed to the novel, if you write something that's a paragraph long or a sentence long, it doesn't work throw it away who cares yeah well you're you teach writing students mm-hmm. I was also a writing major and I think that from what I remember of that period of time there is this sort of pressure of that question of what kind of a writer are you going to be are you a person who's able to write a book mm-hmm. or are you a person who's not able to write a book mm-hmm. sort of that feeling and I always felt like I was the person who was not able to write the book mm-hmm. you know and so then what And so in a way, this idea of the micro-memoir is so appealing. But I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I do. Lately, so the book has been out only since October 10th. But I've done a couple classes in which I've talked about the form and gotten audiences to try one. And it's been so fun to teach because I think it is low stakes and it takes the pressure off. Whereas a lot of people feel like they have a novel in them. But what it would take to get it out is so daunting that they'll never write it down. Whereas if I gave someone an assignment and 20 minutes and this is your prompt and this is you're going to write a one paragraph piece they can do it everyone can do it I mean in my class in Baton Rouge yesterday 
18 out of 18 students did it and they were good. So it's been fun to be able to share this form with other people and almost trick yourself into releasing something that's been inside you. What was the prompt that you gave them? It might be a little long for your podcast, but I talked about the idea of the Wunderkammer, which is a German word, and it means cabinet of wonders. I had given them some examples, and then we talked about this idea of back in the olden days, when you know like a rich king or nobleman in western europe would send people off on expeditions to this place or that place they might bring home some crazy treasure that no one else had seen and he'd put it in the cabinet of wonders so like a narwhal tusk or the shell of a galapagos turtle or a jade sculpture from japan of a couple engaged in an interesting sexual act so they were things designed to appall or to create wonder or memento mori like shrunken heads and I asked people to think of their life and their past as a Wunderkammer. What objects would you put on the shelves? And the objects should have a sense of danger to them. So, but not obvious. Like, you know, it'd be born right about the time you saw a gun or a knife or something. What would be some small object in your life that would surprise someone to know it, it's a charged object for you? And then I gave them 20 minutes to write that story. Did they share some of those stories? Yeah, they all shared them, and they were great. Can you give us some examples of some of the objects that they picked out? Well, I remember one woman writing about her father's cigar. That was really interesting. And I remember another young man opening with throwing um, pebbles into a Gatorade, an empty Gatorade. And as the piece goes on, you realize that it had belonged to his brother who had died the day before, and his siblings are sitting around in the garage tossing pebbles into this. It was a strange object, but it's so loaded by the end of the piece. It was really good. That's fascinating. You've done a lot of poetry. You have a couple poetry books out as well. What is the difference between how you think about a poem? Because poems can be these compressed stories also, and the micro-memoirs that you're doing. Yeah, people have been asking me that a lot because, I, as you mentioned, I've written three books of poems and I'm poet laureate, but I feel like I haven't written a poem in like three years. <laughs> Don't tell. No one will hear this, right? <laughs> How did they nominate you? <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. But of course there is, you know, these hybrid pieces have a parent that is a poem, you know, but they just have another parent too. I think for me, what happened was I fell in love with a sentence and I'd always been in love with the poetic line. That is probably something that sounds strange to someone who's not a writer, but I bet seeing as you have a background in it, you kind of understand that there is a completely different thing. And also, I wanted to tell the truth. It just felt important to me right now in this era of loose facts and big questions on what the truth is. Because when I would write poems, they would be sometimes autobiographical. So if I was reading a poem right here and it was about a professor at the University of Mississippi who has three kids or, you know, and even if you and I talked about it right now, you would have to say, well, the speaker in this poem, instead of saying you, Beth Ann. And so with these pieces, it felt really good to just say, this is nonfiction. Everything is fact check. And every piece I wrote about someone and I named them, I showed it to the person and it's just a fact. They're facts. So is there something that when you're teaching people how to do this, Mm -hmm. so many of our listeners are on the move and they are trying to document what they're doing in interesting ways. Do you have any insight or guidance into why they might want to incorporate the idea of a micro memoir as like a travel blog type thing? I think a travel blog might be chattier and might want to capture impressions of the moment or, you know, facts or details about a culture 
But if someone wanted to also incorporate or instead write pieces that were trying to capture less facts like where you stayed the night or how much something was, but more the emotional truth of a place, the micro-memoir might be a really fun form to try. Maybe you would, for example, just start with an object and see if there was a story there or just the one memorable person from a place and um, just try to describe something surprising about an interaction with him or her. Not try to tell the full story of these were my six days in Bali. Just try to tell the one moment. And if you tell the one moment well enough, it evokes the six days. All right. So actually, rather than reading one piece, we'll have you read a couple, but how about we do the one that's uh, off of the assignment first? Oh, sure. And then the assignment you just gave. So if anybody listening wants to try it, this is an example. Yeah. So the Wunderkammer idea comes from the object, and you'll, you'll quickly meet the object in this piece, Small Fry. I didn't have a grandpa, so I studied my friend Lara's. He dozed before the TV in his wool cardigan. He walked without lifting his feet from the floor. Sometimes, in the afternoon, he shuffled to the hall closet, ducked inside for a moment, then shuffled back to the couch. Lara's eyes didn't swerve from Mighty Mouse, but I had to know what Gramps was doing in that closet. I had to. The next time he shhhed, opened the door, I snuck up behind him. He whirled around, wild-eyed, but when he saw it was me, only me, he smiled. He allowed me to witness him easing from a coat pocket, a palm-sized white paper bag, McDonald's. He noiselessly uncrimped the top, spread its mouth with his thumb and index finger, reached in and pinched out a single fry. I understood that he was sneaking it. I understood that we must hide things from the mommies and the daddies. He held it out to me, a tiny sword, cold as if pulled from the heart of a stone. I love that. Thanks. Um, yeah, so you would not guess an object that has a charge or feels dangerous could be an old, cold McDonald's French fry. <laughs> But, you know, when you're a kid, you understand kids are powerless and adults have all the power. And that that was when I realized that adults who are super old don't have power either. And I understood when he handed me that French fry that I was entering into kind of a complicit, dangerous knowledge with him that we, we had formed a group against the grownups. So that's what I was thinking about as an object of danger. Wow, I love that. So we are also talking about how the people, uh, people, us travel writers, you guys listening, um, what other ideas you might incorporate. And there were two pieces that you could do. So let's take a look. Well, um, I wrote a lot of one line micro memoirs, one sentences, and they were so fun to just try to capture an experience in as few words as possible. So I have my background in poetry, but I've done a lot of freelance writing and poetry is so precious, you know, oh, if you're a poet, you know, it's like every word is chiseled with your microscopic hammer. And freelance actually was a very good teaching experience for me because you have this experience where someone wants 800 words and here's a topic and then they're like, oh, but now we need it 400 words because we got a good ad, you know? And so like you realize 
oftentimes you can't say it in 400 words. You know that compression is a valuable transferable skill. Learning that through freelance is something that I've applied to my literary work that, and I think it's better for it. So I did have fun thinking about one sentence pieces, like how could you compress down to such a place that one sentence could tell a kind of story? So here is one. Returning from spring break, junior year at Notre Dame. Swapped the rosary on my bedpost for Mardi Gras beads. It's great because it shows such a transformation of character. Yeah. And seeing as we're here in New Orleans, Katie, you know, it seems like I should read that one for you. What do I have over there? The doorknob. Mardi Gras beads. (laughs) I've been to a parade or two, of course. That's good. Yeah. I guess the real question is, do you take them with you or not? Or do you leave them behind? I I think you leave them, but you take them in your soul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then this one is a little bit longer. Yeah, this is um, a one-page piece, and it's it's sort of a strange piece. But again, why do we remember certain people? There's someone who has been in my imagination for years that I actually never met, but I think about all the time because of what he robbed from me. So this is a strange piece it's a numbered piece it goes one through ten and the title is number 11 because i want people to come back and think about the title after they've read it number 11 and i've been searching ceaselessly for you ever since monomore one once many years ago i sat on the beach reading and drinking a beer two it was a breezeless afternoon so i decided to cool off by the water Three, I left my book, a fat novel, The Brothers Karamazov, on my folding chair. I snugged my bottle of Newcastle brown ale deeper into its red koozie and screwed the koozie an inch or two into the sand. Four, it was pleasant by the water's edge. The running sandpipers, with their legs puncturing the silk of the receding surf, reminded me of the jackhammer needle of my mother's sewing machine. Five, strolling back maybe ten minutes later, I could easily pick out my blue chair. The beach wasn't crowded, but not the dark lump of book. Six, even standing beside my chair, I could see I couldn't see it. Seven, I towed around in the sand. Nothing. Eight, when I picked up my koozie, it was light, although the bottle hadn't tipped. Nine, Someone had ignored my towel, my chair, my beach bag with its sunblock and keys and wallet, ten, but stole my fat Russian novel and drank my ale. Who is this person? Oh, I don't know. But that's why I had to have the title. And I've been searching ceaselessly for you ever since Mon Amour. I mean, that person's out there in the world. I know, I, and that, I read that piece and I was like, who is this person? Who would do such a thing? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's one of the fun things about writing in this small form is it allows you to focus in on the moment. And I, I feel like just by being a human in a human body with a human brain, a thousand amazing things happen to us every day, but we have to move so quickly past them that we don't actually allow the weirdness or interest of them to fully register. And writing this really small form, it's almost like, clearing away all the clutter all the noise 
of time continuing and dignifying that moment with white space around it. So whatever needs to happen in that moment gets to reverberate. And do you find when you're traveling, if you write something like this down, like if you write about this guy stealing your book Mm -hmm. or girl, I guess, that you remember it more than you would otherwise, like if you were just going forward from there. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, some sometimes I think that's why I'm a writer because I actually don't have a great memory. And I think that sounds strange to people. And I'm jealous of people who have excellent memories, but I don't seem to have a great memory for <laughs> names or faces or dates or a lot of things, but I'll have a very strong sensory impression a certain meal I ate with a certain smell, you know, in the sea air or a certain conversation I overheard and what someone was wearing. And it's so detailed and rich that I want to go back into it. I want to be in that memory. Yeah, that's so interesting. As I was thinking about that in the sense when you were reading the thing about the meeting those people on a plane. Mm-hmm. And I can remember writing down a meeting that I had with an elderly man on a plane where we were sitting next to each other and he opened his coat pocket and sitting in the pocket was a little tiny homemade teddy bear mm. that his wife had made that he carried with him whenever he traveled. And I remember that, but I often wonder, do I remember that only because I wrote it down? Yeah. And would it have been gone otherwise? Yeah, I do think writing things down is a powerful mnemonic device and a way of putting a trapper keeper, (laughs) you know, for our, our memories, making them realer, also changing them, the process of writing changes the memory. And I have, you know, had the experience of realizing what I'm remembering is how I wrote it instead of what happened. And hopefully those two are very close together. I think writing both freezes and alters reality. Mm -hmm. One thing I've been thinking about just even from last night, last night I was out in the streets wearing a costume as is somewhat usual in New Orleans and walking in a parade with musicians with a friend of mine. And all along the way, people are with their phones recording it mm-hmm. or standing in front of the picture recording themselves in front of it. Yeah, And it got me thinking, especially because I knew I was talking to you the next day about this need that we all seem to have in this new culture to document what we're doing yeah. and the difference between documenting it through writing a book like this versus documenting it for your friends live on Facebook. Yeah. And I just thought I'd ask you, since you're teaching young people mm-hmm. who are coming up in this very documentarian way, do you find that you have a need to shape how they're doing it? Or I don't know I'm what the central question there is, is but this sort of drive between art and just sort of life, you know, living life as an art almost. Yeah, I think about that a lot, Katie. I'm not sure I have um, a great philosophical answer for it, but... <laughs> Obviously, I didn't even know yeah, how to ask the question. I mean, so. You know, I ultimately, I don't think we yet understand how selfie culture is going to shape our thinking how the need to you know document moments but not make sense of them so what are we doing if we're taking a picture of someone dancing in the second line or us in front of it you know we're documenting we're trying to gather it as a fact or almost like you know a badge on your girl scout thing like another thing you saw or did but we're not shaping into an arc of meaning we're not processing or reflecting how this art was experienced or changed us or didn't change us. The noise of the technology is really bifurcating any white space or daydreaming ability we have in which the kind of reflection took place that allows us to think 
seeing this dance experience reminded me of or was meaningful to me because or I wish I had the courage to dance in it or you know the the types of thoughts that stitch into a narrative and show the arc of experience which ultimately helps us answer the big questions like who we are and what we're doing here on earth. Yeah, it, for me, it almost seemed like it was almost like there were two layers between what we were doing and what they were doing. Yeah. Not only are they on the outside of what we're doing, you yeah. know, this sort of like partying it up in the streets, but they're again separated from it because they're documenting it. Right. Dear God, let me be one of the dancers. You know? <laughs> right. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. I wanted to ask you before we end, this is from an interview I saw with you. So I wrote it down because I would, knew I would never remember the thought as you said it, but I wanted to ask you about it. You said in an interview that you thought that society hadn't provided an ethos where maturity is an asset. And so I was wondering what exactly you mean by that and then when it comes to writing, the value of being a more mature individual. One of the things that I'm doing in this book, Heating and Cooling, is I'm looking at middle-aged love. And one of the reasons why I'm interested in writing about middle-aged love is, you know, when I met my husband, we were both in graduate school for writing, and I was writing these obsessive love poems. You know, he was the sole focus of my existence. I think I thought we'd had invented sex. No one had done it before, you know, so I needed to write about it clearly. And, you know, now we've been married 20 years, and pretty much I 94.3% of the time still like him, you know? And so I'm still writing about him, but the love has changed. It's it's middle-aged love. It's not dramatic. It's not, you know, our, so our culture is going to show us unrequited love or first love, but we don't provide a sense of the love of long married people as being anything worth looking at. So it was fun for me to, in this book, find some of the quick moments that show what married love is like. So I'll, I'll share with you just one. This is married love four. There's seven in the book. Morning. Bought a bag of frozen peas to numb my husband's sore testicles after his vasectomy. Evening. Added thawed peas to our pasta carbonara. Why do you think that our society has a tendency not to write about middle-aged love or long lasting married love i think it's just not dramatic enough you know but it's definitely dramatic enough for like small pieces that just want to show this is this like wry and complex and loving and funny thing that it is when you know someone and someone's body that well over all these years it's not going to be the topic of the movie unless everyone's cheating on everyone you know right. um but it seemed to me worth paying attention to one question that's sort of a sidestep that I wanted to ask you about, though, you write this book, Heating and Cooling, after writing a novel with your husband. How do you write a novel with another person? Uh-huh. Very carefully. Um, <laughs> you know, we had to learn how to do it. We didn't really have a lot of models for that. And we, we had to try things out that ended up failing until we found our way. So what we started to do makes sense, but didn't work. What we started to do was there were two point of view characters, a female point of view character and a male point of view character. So I was going to write a chapter from the female point of view, email it to Tommy. He was going to write a chapter from the male point of view, email back to me, boom, 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 book's done in a year. You know, <laughs> well, that totally did not work. We got knocked up with our third child early on. So that kind of slowed us down a little bit, but also like our mojo wasn't working. We were so separated from the characters that we weren't writing about. 
Tommy was also going out on book tour. And so when he'd come home, you know, he'd be away three, four days and come home just for two or three days. And it's really hard to kind of like pick up your imaginary life, you know? So it didn't work until we started doing the thing that doesn't make sense, which is we began writing it together in my itty bitty office, kneecap to kneecap. We called it dueling laptops. And at the very end, we were composing aloud word by word. Wow. So when you're sitting next to each other, are you writing the same section? How does that well, even work? You know, it would be different every day, but maybe we'd be like, okay, we know we need Jesse on the levee and we know the conflict in the scene is going to come when this character comes up to the levee and asks him, this is what needs to happen. And so we'd be talking about it and then one of us would say, oh, what if when the character comes up, he says this? And it, and yeah, and the other one says this. And then we're both like typing as fast as we can. And then we're going and we're reading the dialogue back to each other. And then we're like, okay, but wouldn't it be a problem? Wouldn't someone see them? But it's not dark, remember? And we're like, oh, what if this happened the next night? Or, you know, and then blah, 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 typing, typing, typing. And um, then reading it back and forth to each other. And that's when it got really fun. And that's also when it felt different because... The type of writing that we started trying to do was like writing always is, i.e. you're alone with the blank page and you're terrified, you know? <laughs> so at the end, you know, I was I was chilling with my bestie and that was when it was fun. Yeah. Did it change your marriage in some way and like how you interacted to work on a creative project together? I think it just added the richness of here's another thing we've done together and aren't we lucky? Yeah. How is your writing different in the stability of being married for 20 years versus the writing you would have done I think you think you have a Fulbright to Brazil and and like the writing you would have done while you were on the move can you actually see a difference in the two types um or in the approach maybe even yeah I'm not someone who's really big into astrological signs and I'm a Gemini and I don't feel like a Gemini Gemini's are supposed to be twins and apparently they're like really pulled in different directions but the only thing that I might fall into the category in this one area which is I deeply desire extreme travel and stability so I really like my house and I like having a couple things that were passed down in the family not valuable things but just because they have history you know like the the rolling pin of my grandmother's you know stuff like that but I also need extreme travel and if I don't have a trip on the horizon that's exciting to me, I just feel a little duller. And it doesn't have to be next week or next month. Just knowing I'm going out of the country <laughs> at some point gives me a, just a charge and a, like a door in my imagination that I can daydream about and plan for. But I wouldn't say necessarily like my writing is different if I'm in a period of I lived on the Polish Czech border for a year after college. I spent four months in Brazil, spent last year four months in Berlin. I wouldn't say my writing is necessarily different, but I would say I've always felt that travel makes me really alive to new experiences. It's just like someone just took the turpentine all over your eyeballs and you're just like looking at everything freshly and apprehending everything freshly. And I I even think it's good for writers to be in a place where they don't speak the language, you know, or only speak it partially, because I think it reminds you of communication and the beauty and difficulty of words and how they always don't sync up to our experiences. So I've always felt that writing makes me see better and think better, though it's possible there's a little bit of diminishing return being in a foreign country after a while. I think like anything, it, it can become a habit and then it's time to go someplace new. 
Yeah, and it's interesting that every time you go, you go for quite a period of time. Yeah, well, I, I do like a lot of small trips too, but one of the nice things about academia, you know, one of the reasons why my job suits me so well is if you get lucky, every seven years, you can get a sabbatical. So part of my plan is, okay, I'm basically raising with my husband three kids in a small town in Mississippi. <laughs> but what if, you know, every seven years we could really open their minds? So last year, like I said, we lived in Berlin and they went to school there and they wrote the S-Bahn and, you know, they, they ate their Wiener Schnitzel and, you know, it was great. It was so cool to have that. And then seven years before that, we were in Brazil, which was a completely opposite experience and also amazing. So it makes me feel that it's possible to to live a broader life with a deeper experience and still have a small house in a small Mississippi town. Well, the book is called Heating and Cooling, 52 Micro Memoirs by Beth Ann Finley. And if you want to hear our glamour discussion as well, look for the episode titled Glamour. I think I looked it up this morning, but it was a late night last night. <laughs> I believe it's episode 173. And thank you so much for coming to see me in New Orleans of all places when neither one of us are actually from here. Yeah, uh, anytime. I love New Orleans, but it's so fun to talk with you, Katie. Thank you so much. And this is The Bittersweet Life. Join us again. Bye. Thanks to Stackery for supporting this program. Stackery is the global leader in international parcel forwarding from the United States. With Stackery, even though you live abroad, you can shop at your favorite U.S. retailers at prices up to 80% less than directly from the store. Stackery also provides free storage, same-day consolidation of your package, and a tax-free U.S. mailing address. As a Bittersweet Life listener, you can save 10% off your first shipment. Just visit stackery.com and use the coupon code MANJA. That's M-A-N-G-I-A. We welcome your questions and your feedback. Reach the show by emailing bittersweetlife at mail.com. That's bittersweetlife at M-A-I-L dot com.